The Canby Report is recorded and produced on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. It's June 25th, 2019, and after 122 years, the Camby Bar is shutting down. This is the Camby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. And I'm Patrick Meehan. So, a couple of housekeeping notes. We have a survey out. We want to know a little more about what your opinion of the podcast is and how we can make the podcast better. Please go to cambyreport.ca slash survey and figure that out. Out. Let us know what your opinions are, what you like, what you want to see more of, what you want to see less of. And of course, after you're done that, you can go and uh, chip in a couple of bucks to the podcast at patreon.com slash report. Yeah. Say it. At patreon.com slash report, and then you can join our Slack community. That's always thriving. And at patreon.com slash report, you can receive uh, extended episodes as well as exclusive interviews. Well, for those of you who... Uh, are hungering for additional content, patreon.com slash report might be a great destination for you. You know who doesn't need any additional content? Vancouver City Council. They are stuck. They are mired. They are deep in the swamp of too many motions. Where are they at? So obviously we've seen a whole lot of motions come forward. And one of the things that we've seen out of that is last meeting, last council meeting, they referred a handful of motions to their subcommittee, which is a subcommittee of the whole, uh, to, to move through those motions. And they didn't get through them all. And so now tomorrow, when they're meeting their committee to deal with motions that came out of today's agenda, they're going to still have a backlog of a couple of motions from last meeting to deal with. And so what you've got is this sort of like constantly pushing down the road further and further, these more and more motions, as every councillor needs to get an issue on the table. What we had today was 13 new motions from councillors. Let's be clear, there's 11 councillors. So for the, for the council meeting today, for the month of June, uh, for the end of June council meeting, there were 13 motions from councillors. And if you look at the provincial or federal scenes where both of those legislative bodies have risen for the summer because they're not going to consider any new business, they haven't been bringing forward new policies, new bills for quite a while. Yeah, but that's because the House leaders have like near dictatorial control over what gets on the agenda. Yeah. Well, and so when you think about it, uh, a, a council meeting, um, a council motion takes, say, between 45 minutes and six hours to, to, to get through. That's digging into a lot of this. And the councillors are getting bogged down and they're getting tired and it's understandable. And so the question that I really raise is at some point they have to start thinking about, you know, is this motion important enough to bring forward? And it, and not just important enough on its own, but is it more important than what other councillors are bringing forward and other motions that are on the table? And I was curious to get some actual evidence that this isn't just anecdotal. Like, is this a real phenomenon? So I did call up the city clerk's office this morning and left a message saying, how many motions have they brought forward this session? Is that more or less than usual? And their comps person got back to me later saying, there's roughly 75 so far this session, and that's not even a year. And that is significantly higher than average. 
And I think that's not to say that these motions don't have validity. I mean, some of them have more or less validity, but it definitely is a, a, the case that they are bogging themselves down. So if we just look really quickly at today's today's motions, restoring provincial library funding. This is a motion to go towards the ask that uh, UBCM move a motion, uh, you know, lobby the provincial government to restore funding to libraries across BC. Uh, Christine Boyle, I think it was Councillor Boyle that moved the motion. She said that a number of other municipalities are going to move the same motion. That way, it has more weight. Okay, that's fine. And that motion, I think, took like half an hour to pass. So that's not too bad. Transparent process and taxation for land banks repurposed as temporary recreational properties. We're going to get into that. That's the the garden. Uh, that's the garden plot issue on empty lands. That's in the news right now. Okay, so a councillor's decided to move on this. But what they're asking for is they're essentially asking for staff to bring back a report on actions the city can do. So now staff are going to be busy. Endorsing the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. This one uh, was, you know, Councillor Fry's motion come forward again, where he wants to essentially update the city's nuclear weapons stance to call upon Canada to sign a bill. Again, this motion could have taken 15 minutes. It took a little longer because every councillor had to sort of give their spiel about where, you know, the different protests in the 80s that they were at. Um, you know, Councillor Fry talked about how he was at a protest in the in the the, the nineties or something with uh, with Councillor Boyle's husband, and Melissa Genevan, not to be left out. Talked about how you know you can see her in a picture at one of the protests in her in a stroller being pushed around by her dad, uh, and so that required time. Even the right wingers on our council need to. I'm not going to say virtue signal, but basically. Oh yeah, signal yep. how and how pacifist yep. they are. Uh, accountability for climate change. Math to you can't see it, but Matthew is rolling his eyes at the moment. I'm I'm nearly straining my eye rolling muscles. Like yep. there are, like I always thought when I was driving into Vancouver that the nuclear free city motion was a little ridiculous in general because the middle of a city. It's not like the Bloedel Conservatory is a secret silo and is this going to you know click open and then the fucking Saturn V rockets are going to go shoot Titan II rockets. It's That's the one. That would be a sweet, like, so, Canadian James Bond-style movie, though. Yeah, that would be. There's a second component to this. Now, if this was just requiring council to sit for longer and longer hours, and which is ca- causing friction amongst councillors, we noticed that last week, if it was just that, you know, it, it, it means that you know, Justin McElroy and Dan Fumano and Francis Beulah and this podcast team uh, all have to spend a lot more time, you know, researching what the issues are and trying to, you know, package that to the public. And the councillors have to waste more of their lives sitting in that council chambers. That's not the biggest of deals. But a lot of these motions are report backs. And so that's now staff time. And so staff are updating the short-term rental policy. Staff are updating the policy on ensuring, uh, on attempting to incentivize rental production. And staff are reporting back on all of these things. And so at a certain point, how much are staff going to be able to get done that's actual staff work? And how much of it is just going to be reports back to the city city council? Well, I mean, reports back to city council is part of their job. And I, I acknowledge that. But I think that, for example, the stuff that involves like, I'm really very reticent to have deliberative bodies asking other deliberative bodies to do stuff that isn't really part of their mandate or or vision. And, and that's, like, my own personal opinion on how governments should work. I don't see a ton of value in Vancouver taking international relations policies. Now, Port Coquitlam, however... <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, we'll but Matthew, that. but that's but yeah. that's exactly how but that's exactly how the shark fin ban be, you know gathered so much steam was city after city was banning them and now it's a federal no, but law. C- city after city banned them in their borders. 
That's not... But as a component of most of those motions, they also included a call upon the federal government to ban it across Canada. And had I been a city councillor in one of those, I would have asked to strike the second part, but... Okay. Anyways, but yeah, the, the component that I have more, more issue with, because, you know, just asking the province to increase the funding for libraries, uh, sure. The, well, no, but like, that, the, the, that's the, fine, because you're asking for money for your yeah, stuff. Yeah, you're just, yours is the nuclear thing. Yeah, like it's, one it's, motion out of seventy so far this year. Well, I don't, I don't know. I haven't had the the chance. Actually, I have, but <laughs> um, I, but I have reviewed all of them. I can't think of any that particularly stand out. But, but yeah, I think I think the question that I have really comes down to, and now we've got six different motions to do with incentivizing rental that are requiring reportbacks at different timescales, and so at some point we're just throwing more wrenches at a machine trying to fix it. At some point, you're you're bogging down your people that are actually trying to, to help you fix the problem. And I think that's the case that we're getting into now is everybody wants to get their name on a motion. It's becoming a real difficulty for them to get anything done. Well, it's almost the inevitable result of having such a fractured council. Mm-hmm. When you had a vision majority and an NPA opposition, you could do a lot of your preparatory work on motions essentially in caucus. And then you come forward having thought through them. They're almost doing their thinking in public now. And that just means a lot more is being thrown at the wall. Almost like it's a deliberative body. Agenda setting is a very valuable power. And Kennedy Stewart ceded another large and valuable power uh, in the, the... What do you mean? Oh, he... Uh, the power to starve your opponents of operational funding is also something that is, he gave it up. And, and that's good, in my opinion. But uh, if the councillors were less well-resourced they probably wouldn't have so many motions. Oh, I don't I don't think this is coming out of being resourced. Uh, as, a, as an example, we know that a couple of the MPA councillors have not used any of that fund at all, and they're putting forward just as many motions as other councillors. Well, I, like, it's all it's all sources of power in this this type of thing. So, like... But that's... And that's, that gets into sort of my question, is I think, you know, media, we and we as part of that, I guess, need to start asking councillors, like, why is your motion more important than other motions? Because, you know, we're not getting to all the motions. They're taking forever. You know, Don't you think that maybe there should be some form of triage? Or why is your motion like so much more important? Like an agenda committee, for example. Or one of the things some councillors are starting to try to use is a consent agenda, where they can just mm-hmm. say, this shouldn't be controversial. Let's put this motion there, and we can either vote it up or down without debate. And Councillor DeGeneva actually ran into some trouble with that this week. Well, so this morning, Councillor DeGeneva tried to take a motion that she was moving forward, and I believe it was her Italian piazza motion, which would call for uh, the creation $15,000, I think she's budgeted out as, to, to build a, a community outdoor piazza, essentially, for the Italian community. And she attempted to move it on to the, the consent agenda. It was opposed because, essentially, the argument that, that Councillor Weeb used was, you know, we should be getting through our whole agenda rather than needing to slap things into the consent agenda just because you're afraid that it won't get to it on the agenda, which was the the express verbal reason that Councillor DeGeneva used for why she wanted it on the consent agenda was because she was afraid it wouldn't get passed. It's also the case that Councillor DeGeneva monopolizes a lot more of council's time than the other councillors. And so I could understand a councillor saying, you know, if you're going to take up more time with procedural wranglings, if you're going to oppose things like reducing the number of minutes that a delegate, that a, a speaker at council can say from five to three because you want everybody to be heard, then maybe you shouldn't argue for a, a special consideration for your motions. So pressing and uncontroversial, I think, is the, the two things that 
should allow for things to go on the consent agenda. Why is this pressing? Wasn't the Italian days like three weeks ago? Wouldn't this be for next year? Yeah, she argued it was pressing. I, I Honestly, I, I was only half listening at the time and I didn't quite catch it. But she argued it was pressing for some reason. And the big challenge there was she almost didn't get a seconder for it. And that's what's leading to the interpretation, not a direct quote from any counselors that they think she's monopolizing the time. Yeah, it uh, it definitely took a couple of beats. It was noticeable today throughout council that other councillors are not giving her seconds on a lot of motions. Councillor Dominato is the only one that seems willing to second her on motions, and she does second. But on this case, for example, Councillor Stewart had to call like essentially a third, like a last last call for count last last call Going for once. seconds. Going twice. It, yeah, and that's what it was. And then uh, you know, Councillor Dominato. Uh, raised her hand. I think it's a learning process for all the councillors, and they're certainly getting to the point where they know the strings and levers of power well enough that they are able to manipulate council and not just follow the lead of the two veteran returning councillors, Carr and the mm-hmm. Genova. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, some of the sitting councillors have a lot more experience on boards of directors than either of them do. Sure, they're former councillors, but you know, Councillor Dominato has been sitting on nonprofit boards for decades. She knows the ropes. Councillor Kirby Young is, you know, former park commissioner and also somebody who has, you know, sat on those West Side Vancouver boards. These are people that know the ropes. And you're right that now that now that the newness of council is wearing off, they're able to really assert themselves. Of course, every new organization has its own little idiosyncrasies, mm-hmm. and that's why I think it's taken a couple of months. But yep. yeah, I think this is probably going to be more like the tenor of the next couple of years. And if she is going to be an effective, this is you know my free advice, just as I've given it to Councillor Carr, craft better motions. This one is going to be be more judicious in your speaking. When I sat on nonprofit boards before, there was like. Whenever someone brought up a, I just like to repeat myself, or I just like to echo the comments of, then people would just start booing, just like, (laughs) you know, a low, low rumble of discontent. And I think that, you know, certainly that would be very unparliamentary for the other councillors to do, but maybe uh, Councillor Dijanova could carry around a little peanut gallery inside her head that could tell her, have I said this already? Is my point already on the record? And then trust her words to carry themselves. Even even council this morning didn't get going for a good 15 minutes because Councilor DeGeneva wanted to debate with the mayor whether or not the order that they were going to do the opening of the council meeting uh, was in keeping with tr- with the way that they normally did it. And she was quite adamant that it was not in keeping with it, that the order needed to move moved around. And it was back and forth and back and forth. Uh, at a later point, Councillor Sarah, Sarah Kirby-Young was speaking uh, against an issue that Councillor Melissa Geneva was in support of. And uh, I don't know what was being said because I was on the live stream. But Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young asked Melissa Geneva to stop talking several times because Councillor Kirby-Young had the floor. To a point where the mayor had to intervene. And so this is getting awkward, the unparliamentary activities. All right. Well, be parliamentary. Yeah. You know, (laughs) study some Cicero, I guess. (laughs) Well, in the last little bit of contention that this extended amount of motions is bringing up is the consultation involved. Mm -hmm. There are some uncontroversial elements, but there are lots of controversial ones that take lots and lots of feedback. And one of the things that has gain some ire for better or worse for the way it's facilitated feedback is our friends at Abundant Housing Vancouver. (laughs) Many of them are our friends and patrons for the email tool they set up in the past. 
Yeah, it's a pretty standard tool. A lot of organizations use it. It's you know you you fill out your name and you and you can edit the bulk of the email. But broadly, the email says I support this development for whatever reasons that abundant housing is put together, and you can edit that down. And you could even make mockery of abundant housing if you want on it, you know, changing it, and it goes in. And the idea for this is, and I've had this happen before, where you know friends will be in favor of something, and I'll say, oh, you should write in, and they'll say, I don't have time, and I don't know enough to really draft an email. I just support the project, and I'll say, no, 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 just like just write one sentence at mayorandcouncilifevancouver.ca like i support this project that's it uh, you if you want to add in that you live nearby great uh but that that's a real barrier to people also adding your postal code is like a really good step for making sure that people take it seriously at least at the city level yeah if you if you say that you live nearby yeah if you just just saying that you live in the neighborhood is i think really valuable um i've been told that before but like it, there's a barrier to that and you know, this, this tool seems to get around it, but it turns out that, you know, this tool isn't going to be perfect. And some people are going to put for name fluffy bunny or something like that. I think the examples were, were fairly innocuous. Uh, some people put only their first name, like Jessica or something like that. But broadly speaking, it ends, it ends up being the case where, you know, out of say 200 form letters that maybe 20 or 30 of them aren't really valid. I I wanted to go through them all, but I didn't quite have that level of uh, anal retentiveness today. And so, I mean, it's Vancouver. There entirely could be someone named Fluffy Bunny. Well, and so Halt has come out and really challenged them on this, is the idea that, well, they're just an AstroTurf campaign. These are all fake signatures. You can't trust any of them, uh, which I think is really, you know, again, these two organizations hate each other with a passion that would fuel a thousand suns. But it's it's stunning to watch this, like, this, this bickering back and forth trying to delegitimize people that are just speaking out in favor of it and it really does bring i think more into question the idea of what how do you actually meaningfully consult and i don't i still don't know an answer i used the abundant housing tool because i was afraid that i was going to write like 30 pages so (laughs) forced brevity (laughs) yeah i'm just like does this encapsulate my points yep good enough and like the thing about these things is that they work And I think they are incredibly valuable. And I think more people who support housing should use Abundant Housing's tool. When I worked in the constituency office of a MLA, we we still talk about this, me and my former colleague, talk about Raw Milk Week, where a form letter came in thousands of times, thousands from all over the province, people talking about raw milk. And there was like this very, very like long period of sorting people and responding only to the ones in the constituency and then saying, normally we wrote to people who weren't in the constituency saying, your MLA is this person. Hmm. Please contact them. And uh, we didn't do that for these ones because we knew that every MLA had gotten them. But like we responded to the people in the constituency and that was a large effort that caused like a lot of memory to and a lot of like mental space to be taken up by this raw milk issue. And I'm still very aware of it to this day, several years later. So like it it can attest to the effectiveness of these campaigns, go use them, sign up. And uh, yeah, I I think they're great. But we didn't change any policy on raw milk. We still require pasteurization. Oh yeah. 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 Thankfully. I mean, it, it was a, a dumb campaign. And... <laughs> but yeah, that's the point, is anyone can set them up. Halt can set up their tool to yeah. oppose every yeah. project if they want. And that's or, what they should do. They yeah. shouldn't be like, oh, this is invalid. They should be like, oh, clever clever girl. Yep. And then their Velociraptor-like uh, claws may descend on the future of Vancouver, ripping it to shreds. 
Well, hopefully our next coverage of the Vancouver municipal election will not have to be quite so thorough as to cover 175 candidates. We what didn't even it? get close to like... Yeah, we got like 30 maybe. It was, yeah. it, it was a wild. Good number, but... and, and we know from the, uh, the surveys that Vancouver did that it proved a barrier to a lot of people's uh, ability to vote because a lot of people reported that they felt it was a barrier to being able to be educated on, the, on who to vote for. So, Councillor Carr has taken up that particular banner and is running with it in the service of making it slightly harder to run and slightly easier to vote. She is changing the requirements for uh, signatures and deposits from a slightly lower amount to a slightly more onerous amount, which is something that we've advocated on the show. The new amounts are from 25 to 100 for council parks and schools. And for 200 for mayoral candidates. Which still doesn't seem like enough. Nope. Yeah, the thing that gets me is we know that it takes like 40,000 votes to win an election uh, for council. And so just demonstrating that you can stand outside Broadway, you know, City Hall, Skytrain Station for a couple hours and get 100 signatures, to my mind, isn't enough. Like, I think that the monetary issue is one that I think I have a little bit more understanding for, you know, if you can't raise, you know, it's a thousand dollars to run for the provincial or federal elections, you know, that's, that's, I think a barrier, but you should be able to get, I think a thousand signatures if you want to run for council. I don't, I, and I think that to my mind, decreasing the number of candidates on the ballot from, I think it was 70 council candidates. seventy-eight. It, yeah. If we could get that down to 50 or 40 or 30, uh, you're not going to get it to 30 likely, but if we can get that down to 45, that's much easier. You knock off 30 names. Implement award system. That's the pushback that I saw on uh, on social media a bit, was a lot of organizations said they shouldn't do this. They should instead go for award system. I say, I, or, or some form of electoral reform. I say, Vancouver can switch to award system if it would choose, but any other form of electoral reform is going to require provincial action at, uh, to change the charter. And so... In lieu of that, there's this. And the other issue is I think there's two issues at play. Uh, One issue is splitting the vote and weird voters having to make decisions on strategy. And I think the other issue is voters feeling incapable of being educated on an issue because there's too many names on a ballot. And similarly, if at a provincial election we had 14 people running for that provincial seat, that I think would form a barrier to a lot of people who are are new voters. Uh, Particularly if you don't have big strong brand yeah familiarity with any of the parties yeah, yeah which we definitely didn't have in this election and so you know i, mean, I think like it's not like one of our parties is the most successful political entity in the western world but <laughs> <laughs> yeah but they don't have good name recognition east of barbitas <laughs> fair enough <laughs> <laughs> well i think increasing the signature rate would solve that what i would like to do is i i, I would like to see them increase it well above 100 for council if you want to run for council it should not be 100 signatures i think we were saying 500 yeah 500 is a great number uh, i would even settle for 250 but 100 is you know three hours outside a commercial broadway sky train station yeah and like i will literally sign anyone's form yeah i, I me too yeah i signed a marijuana party candidate's form once why not I signed one or two in the last election. Yeah, I would and, have signed more. And she just pulled up to me on her bike on King George Boulevard, then King George Highway, uh, on her bicycle and asked me to sign her nomination papers for the riding. And I was like, sure, why not? So, yeah, the other number in here is that Carr wants to see the deposit raised from $100 to 150 And she tied that to inflation, which yeah. seems 
fine. It's an inflationary increase from the last time, and I don't really mind. 150 is still, I don't think, a financial barrier. I Again, like I said, I'm leery about it, but I don't think 150 is a financial barrier. You can ask some of those signatures to chip in a couple bucks. Yeah. Well, and they then. might be chipping away at uh, Vancouver's overall budget, 100 to $150 contribution at a time. Will it eventually make up the massive amount of money that is being lost in the gas stations? Our next topic is the community garden tax break. So what is happening is basically there's two different tax rates available if you own a property. You can leave it as an empty lot. A that commercial is, property. A commercial property. You can leave it as a former gas station slash future office building and pay the full tax rate. Or you can temporarily make it a community garden. Everyone is happier and you pay far less taxes because the provincial government moves you to a different category, which seems like a no-brainer to most commercial property owners. Yeah, I think it knocks off about a third of the commercial property tax. And those are significant. It could be big numbers. Because yeah. commercial property owners pay most of the taxes in Metro Vancouver. Mm-hmm. In Va- well, City of Vancouver. City of Vancouver. This is in the news in part because of a dog park down in the West End where a former office building, uh, or rather former car park, a former like parking lot uh, that was pay parking, was just filled with gravel and then said, uh, they just said, it's a dog park now. And they ended up getting a massive tax break. This kind of thing, I like, I tend to think is actually a positive because number one, empty gas stations are a horrible blight on a community. And I live near two of them. And uh, one of them is a community garden. And one of them is a horrifying blank, empty, dead space surrounded by razor wire. And I know which one I enjoy walking past. And so the argument against encouraging this is you're requiring effectively everyone else in the city of Vancouver to subsidize that lowered tax rate. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and this ends, ends up being quite a bit. Dog Park, Matthew, that you're mentioning is, you know, $382,000 per year in, re, in reduced taxes, which has to be borne by the rest of the residents. So that's probably, you know, doing some really rough math, probably for every, every residential property in Vancouver, 25 to 40 cents. And for every commercial property in Vancouver, uh, 20 cents a, a year. year. Yeah, but that's one property. Yeah. So then, you know, it adds up. You know, maybe you're paying 10 or $15 more a year in property taxes than you otherwise would have because there's, you know, 30 community gardens in the city. But then also That's how I'm going to put have... it. Yeah. I, like, community gardens, though, are very positive things to have because, number one, we should be gardening more. It's just, like, a very healthy mental activity for people to get into. I mean, certainly, it's not one that I particularly feel interested in, but uh, people should have that option uh, in an urban setting, you know, with all that land taken up by so many, so many towers, and no one has a yard. Oh, wait, it's Vancouver. But Well, but a lot of the uh, community gardens are in places that are fairly, are, are much higher density. The first one, the first community garden that be, that made news about this was probably two or three decades ago, and that was one that was installed at Granville and uh, at Davie and Burrard. Uh, the very large community garden that was a gas station, and mm-hmm. now it's been a large community garden for for a long time. I think it might even be now permanently. Nothing is permanent once that land value. No, hits. no, well, fair, <laughs> but that allows that the neighborhood there to be able to utilize a community garden, and they don't necessarily have access to it. If you have a basement suite in a detached home in a residential area in Vancouver, you don't have access to gardening necessarily, probably not. And so this gives you community access to gardening. So the question is. 
is that a value? And, you know, I've seen long wait lists for community gardens uh, that are of this ilk. I know a friend of mine was on the wait list for the one at, I think, 16th and Oak for quite a while and just waited for it and waited for it. And the question is, is this of sufficient community value? Now, the reason that these places are lying fallow and haven't immediately been redeveloped is because there is a uh, large price tag associated with soil remediation after a place was a gas station. And I noticed this because I have to fill up my car way too often because I hate driving and I still have to do it. And, you know, people, when they are pulling their gas uh, nozzle out of the car, sometimes a couple drips fall, often a couple drips fall. Sometimes those tanks leak underground. The tanks leak underground, though, when they get refilled, there's leakage. These things are not good. Yeah. yeah. And uh, like many, many chemicals, many, many years of contamination will often leach into surrounding lots, which means, of course, that when you actually do the analysis and find that there has been leakage and contamination, that you have to remediate the surrounding lots, which, at least in some instances, has tripled the purchase price of property by adding soil remediation to it. And there, frankly, is just no good way to remediate soil yet. Now, there are some promising... Do you mean to say that time does not heal all wounds? (laughs) Come on, that was funny! And so in the meantime, we can put pretty gardens on top of there. The the (laughs) counter-argument to this is, and I think there is some some question marks here uh, in terms of, like, in validity, like, I think it is valid, is that... If you give them the full property tax assessment, they're more likely to go about the process of remediation and building something on that lot and allowing it to be homes and proper and businesses and whatnot. And so that's, I think, a value. Now, I don't know what the likelihood of this. Now, if you've got a property that you're, you're forking over $300,000 more per year in property taxes, well, you might be incentivized to get going on that. And so maybe that is a, pro- a process of this subsidy means that corner lots are being turned over for communal use rather than turned into, you know, more housing or more what have you not. Well, it seems like we have talked ourselves into basically no resolution there. I still want these community gardens. like mm-hmm. I, And I kind of feel like until the cost of remediation starts coming down precipitously, because God knows we're going to start removing gas stations in many other places, someone's going to figure out a way to do it. I, I think that the tax break seems like a, a decent way to reward people for just otherwise fencing off their lots. Like, it's just... It's, yeah, it definitely raises that, how do we put this land to good use mm-hmm. in the meantime without the city going to the process of expropriating all the land that is not being used and building homes on it? And in the meantime, while we don't have the money and legal capacity to take that on, we can at least maybe incentivize them to put some community gardens there. Well, from city capacity to heat capacity, our studio has reached its boiling point. So we're going to take a short break. (sighs) Are you tired of sleeping on your old lumpy mattress? Well, the Camby Report has a special offer for you. Try sleeping on my old lumpy mattress. I have recently purchased a new mattress. Doesn't really matter where. No one's paying us to say this. So you can have my old mattress, which is currently sitting under my stoop. All you have to do is find out where I live from the many clues that I have dropped throughout this podcast. Come out to my back plaza. Yell patreon.com slash report three times and claim your mattress. This special offer is available until that mattress is gone. Now, if you want to have the dulcet tones of myself, Ian, and Pat reading your ad, contact can be report at gmail.com. 
Welcome back to the Camby Report with a TransLink News Bonanza. So, Elm Tots? Expo Line means for transit-oriented teens. It's that easy. So, uh, TransLink had their annual general meeting uh, just recently uh, down in uh, Richmond. And uh, one of the things that they, they came out of that I was thought was really fascinating was the CEO, Desmond, gave an immediate call-out to the Expo Line memes for transit-oriented teens, which, for those of you that aren't aware, is a internet meme group of people that support TransLink. On Facebook. Yes. I, I'm a proud member, and I think everybody that's interested in weird memes about the internet uh, and, uh, and public transit should should join. Essentially, Elm Tots is uh, a this really neat group. There's two or three thousand of them on the Facebook group, and it's a real sign that we've got an engaged and active group of TransLink cheerleaders in the region, which is something that I don't think I during the transit referendum would have ever thought humanly possible. I think it's really fascinating. I immediately got a shout out. There were there were 20 or so of them at the meeting, which was really neat. Well, yeah. and I think one of the things you've talked about in the past, Pat, is the addition of the U-Pass has potentially mm-hmm. created a new generation of transit users and lovers. Yeah, it's it's really true. We know that statistically that people that have a U-Pass continue to use it. And so I think we are really seeing a, a, a case uh, and following on with that. Uh, I mean, that's why, sorry, just as a saying, that's why Translake has become this lifestyle brand that people, yourself included, Patrick, yeah. have purchased throw pillows. I mm-hmm. have socks. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so following on with that, we've also seen, an, again, a 4.5% increase in ridership from January to May. This is the first time TransLink's announced this all year. I've been keeping an eye out for it. Last year, throughout the year, they were announcing it every month, what the, the growth was. And it was wild. It was like 7% growth, 6.5% growth monthly. And it, it ended up averaging 6.5% growth last year, which meant an accumulated growth over three years of 18%. Now we're adding a 4.5% growth on top of that, which means uh, on a four-year run, we're looking at like a 25 or a 30 25 or 28 percent growth in ridership, which is uh, wild when you consider that most transit agencies in North America are seeing annual decreases in ridership. But most transit agencies in North America are not using Hootsuite to build their brand on social media. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you know what? You know what? I I think it's shall, just... shall you explain it before you Fine. hot yeah. take? Fine. No, you you explain it, then I'll hot take. Hootsuite tweets out, "Hey, congrats on the ridership increase, Translink." If you are a brand that wants to increase your... Essentially, they just insinuated it was their platform that helped boost ridership in transit. Which and then Francis, Francis Bula savaged them. By pointing out maybe it's the increased service hours of all the buses on the roads. Yeah, but you know what? A company ran a PR campaign that is basically immeasurable, and this is their brand, and... I don't think they ran the PR campaign. I think it's just runoff of Hootsuite software. I think the the internal communications people at Translink are runoff Hootsuite software. Is what well, whatever, was whatever, whatever it was it was that they were doing, like, you know what they they have such an ephemeral product that I think they get to toot their own horn or hoot their own thorn in whatever way they want. I'm proud of this little Vancouver success company, and uh, if. I have to put up with a little bit of inanity to see them succeed. Just don't fucking move to Palo Alto. Um, yeah, so all it was was that TransLink uses Hootsuite's uh, platform for their communication. But, of course, the real story is the increased service hours. And, of course, we are perpetually being teased by the gondola. I just really want to mention the gondola because I am interested in seeing what more of the nombies uh, have to say. The not, not above my not, backyard? Or, or Nambies, I suppose, but not no. over my backyard is what I had been thinking. And also yep. Nambi is just like a delightful sounding word in my mouth. 
And Kevin Desmond did say that you know, he teased it. He said, and maybe we'll build a gondola. And so this this constant gondola tease is just continuing. I think the money's going to be there for it, and I think it's going to happen, but we were still waiting on the final announcement. One announcement that we are waiting for, very exciting, is the... Well, basically, it's a response to a policy that I literally called murderous uh, in a previous episode of Spirits of the Law. Check that one out, by the way. Uh, And it is the policy of TransLink to stop running their trains before the bars close, uh, which basically encourages drunk driving. Yeah, so over the last two years, TransLink's been reviewing its late-night service offers and has teased that this Thursday, they're going to make a big announcement and people hoping for more service should be excited. Yeah. And so Ian Black of the Vancouver Board of Trade uh, says that people should be excited about it. He's seen early briefings. You know, I think it should be a pretty substantial improvement. Uh, Justin McElroy of the CBC has said, you know, not to expect 24-hour service because TransLink only has 15,000 hours of maintenance time that it can do on the rails every year. And that's when the system isn't operating. And if you break that down to a month, you know, you're only looking at like a small amount of hours that you can burn through. And so they don't, they really have to get that done. I would expect, you know, an hour later transit service, as Matthew says, to match with bar closing for TransLink. Well, one thing that will be closing soon is the RFP for, or unless it's already done, whatever, uh, for the Broadway subway extension. Among these is a company which I assume the acronym stands for Suddenly No Corruption. The final three bidders for building the Broadway to Arbutus extension of the Millennium Line includes SNC-Lavalin, which Burnaby's mayor, Mike Hurley, has been a little skeptical on. Kennedy Stewart said as long as the process is fair and transparent, he's willing to consider anyone. But it's one of those stories that because it's attracted so much attention over the last year that a lot of people, I think, are raising their eyebrows at this company. Well, and like, sure, but also there's like five companies in the world that have the capability of doing this. So most major countries have a company or two companies that can do it. It's, you know, Canada is not unique in that we have, you know, SNC-Lavalin and Bombardier. Yeah. Uh, Bombardier is not on the short list. There are two other companies that are on the short list and uh, they're not actually companies on their own merit. They are conglomerations of other corporations that have come together and organizations that have come together to bid on the process. So as just a way to give you a whole bunch of words. Akiona Infrastructure and Gela Canada are the two primary leads on this one group that's in the shortlist. And the other members of the group include IBI Group, Dialogue, Dialogue's a consulting architecture firm in Vancouver, uh, Mott McDonald Canada, Parsons Inc., Mott McDonald Canada, and Madrid-based Ingenieria Especializida de Obra Civil e Industrial. I am not good at Spanish, I'm sorry. It gives you a sense of sort of the idea. You know, SNC-Lavalin can, with one of its subgroups called West Ninth Partners, which is a private consortium solely comprised of four different divisions of SNC-Lavalin, which corporations and shells go really hand in hand, they can just do this. Uh, whereas anybody else that bids on it is like Broadway Connect, which is a company that's being formed by Dragados Canada Acon Infrastructure and ACS Infrastructure, with minor participants including, and then a whole bunch of other organizations that have the word infrastructure in them, and Via Architects on that list. Uh, And so, really, you have this problem of one big company can just run the thing, or you can rely on seven different companies to team up and have a super team. A Justice League. I was going with Captain Planet, but Justice League works. It's apparently Acthijona. 
The A-C-C-I-O-N-A? Yeah. Yeah, I gave it my best. Accizona, according to the IPA spelling. It's a Spanish company as well. I was thinking Italian, and there would be Acciona. Well, Spain has lots of trains. This is how I would be if I was on the Metro Vancouver board and I was making this decision, so maybe I shouldn't be on the board. Spain has lots of trains, therefore a Spanish company's good. The The trains trains in Spain fall mainly on the main. (laughs) Speaking of the Metro Van board, were we going to mention... The newly elected member of the Metro Van board? It's not on our show list. Uh, oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Metro Van had their, had their by-election, and with a whopping 100 votes, uh, I think um, Jennifer was her name, I think they got elected. It doesn't matter. I, I mean, congrats. it does matter, but it also doesn't matter. Um, I mean, this is not surprising. She, she, she lives in the Neighborhoods Association, as I understand it. She's a pretty standard uh, rep from there. I believe all of them were supportive of Broadway Subway out to UBC, so that's fine. And literally, how could you not be? But, yeah, it's a little disappointing to not see Madison Moore get elected. Uh, and uh, just because I, I like the idea of a student holding that spot, especially since students are the primary users of transit. There are two other students that are running as well. Yes. Uh, Elizabeth Garvey was one, and I can't recall the other one. They didn't necessarily split the vote, given that only, two, I think there were 150 votes cast, and the winner got 80% of them. Uh, she got 100-something votes, and she got 80% of the votes cast. So Turnout matters. Yeah. Jen McCutcheon. Congrats. Uh, but yeah, 100 votes gets you a mayor's council seat, apparently. Well, moving from the mayor's council across to the North Shore, the District of North Vancouver is debating really how much money went into the last election and whether that should influence what councillors get to vote on or not. Yeah, so a motion came forward at council. Right now, District of North Vancouver is uh, essentially a split five to two. Uh, and so for five councillors who basically oppose, you know, de- redevelopment and growth, the uh, five councillors essentially who support uh, a, po- a population growth rate of no more than 1% annually, which is a policy at the District of North Vancouver, uh, and two councillors that were sort of more representative of the, the last council at the district, which was in favor of sort of more uh, moderate growth, you know, perhaps growth as high as 1.5% of population. I'm obviously making a joke there. Yeah, that's a massive hyperbole. And so the 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 new council really has been sticking it to the the old council in a lot of ways. And I think several of those councillors are really really didn't like spending four years in opposition like they did, and now they're in the government side or the, the majority side. And so they've got a motion that says that if you took any money from a developer in the last election, it's just requiring a disclosure every time there's a vote. So if a development proposal comes forward to a vote, councillors must disclose prior to the vote what donations they got from people associated with the applicant company. So I guess you have to do a run-through of everybody that works for that company uh, or works for that company that donated to your campaign. Well, that's very unwieldy. That's that's and impossible. That inf- and that information's be. already public. Yeah. And there would be an online link on each no, counselor's biography linking well, to their campaign disclosure statements, which is actually not a bad idea. I mean, sure, yeah, sure, fine. Uh, encourage counselor, and it would, and it encourages counselors to recuse themselves from votes involving development companies that had owners, directors, employees who gave them money or family members of those groups. If I were a developer, I'd make sure to give just a little bit of money to everyone. All the time. Well, and well, further to oh, that... Oh, wait, that's what they do. Oh. Well, and, and further to that, too, is there's a lot of North Shore-specific development companies that operate on the North Shore and have their head offices on the North Shore and have employees on the North Shore. That could be a lot of random people you have to track down to figure out if you got money from, especially if you got money from, say, like 80 people uh, total, and you had to figure out, like, you know, how many people... Yeah, it's... This also, is... development is, like, 11% of our economy. Not well, in North Van. 
<laughs> but yeah, so that's the motions. The motion's been referred to staff for review. Where do all the architects live? They live. <laughs> yeah, and but just like just continuing on with the process of the District of North Vancouver, continuing to be a bit of a bit of an oddball. Well, that's stupid. You know what's also kind of stupid? The fact that China got to hold a luncheon at the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. Which time? <laughs> They've been doing it for I think four years now. Yep. And other organizations have done it too. So the, the, this issue came to a head when uh, Mayor uh, Brad West uh, from Port Coquitlam came out with a big broadside against the Federation of Canadian Municipalities for allowing a, a luncheon to be sponsored by the government of China. This apparently has been going on for several years. And in previous years, luncheons or other brunches or whatnot were sponsored by uh, major national unions uh, and other organizations like that. China seems to be the only like nation state that has paid for one of these and that raises concerns that I think are worth digging into and even just the pressure of a foreign government on our local governments is weird. I mean of course the proper way that they should have done this was have people handing out flyers that saying free pass with delegate badge to a party that's happening off-site. Yeah, well, and I think this this also represents a bit of a shift over the last five years. Is uh, as 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 many journalists have reported. Originally, the fact that this was happening was was sold as good. This was this was bragged about by councillors and and members of the FCM and the Canadian government that. Our trade relations with China were so good that China was coming over here to try to further those trade relations. This was going to build up, bolster our economy. This is the sort of like John McCallum approach to China affairs for those that are really into federal pol- politics. Uh, but I think we've seen over the last two years a shift in the, in how we view China from a, a potentially untapped market to a potential a geopolitical rival or a potential geopolitical issue. Uh, and this now has come to a head with, with Mayor West really just unloading with both barrels on on the FCM, and yeah. Well, and this action by West plays into his brand, which has been mm-hmm. speaking out about corruption and really trying to get the stage to yell and scream about this, and that's earned him a lot of fans. And it turns out when you say, call his moves antics on Twitter, <laughs> that his fans take deep personal offense to such words. Oh, I saw that. I saw you tweeted that as Politicoast, and I went, Oh, we're gonna get letters, and we did. Huh? You never get. We never do get letters about my. We got know. tweets though, <laughs> but I think West is in the right here. This oh, is something worth no. questioning, and I mean, hopefully we will get him on the podcast soon because yeah. he said he would talk to us. Yeah, I think I think there is. It's been raised. Frances Bula put up a, a long, like a long Twitter Twitter rant where she basically said, you know, the FCM runs its own its own shed. They run their own operations. If they want to change the rules around who gets to donate to them, they can. So all of these councillors, like Sarah Kirby Young, Councilor Kirby Young came out and she said that she says that in today's atmosphere, they, she believes that it's improper. Well, you know, she could raise the issue. She is a, a, a delegate. Councillor Pete Fry did come out and say and defended a couple of days ago. He is, uh, I believe he's Vancouver's delegate to the executive of the FCM. He could move a motion of the executive to change their policies. And this is something that can happen. You know, it's not necessarily something you need to unload on uh, the way that Brad West did, but you know it's not something you don't need to, I guess, because you know politics is done in different ways and different styles. Well, humping the bus back on to Port Moody, Rob Vagramov, the embattled mayor, oid thing of Port Moody, is no longer going to be taking a salary as he mounts his defense against sexual assault charges. 
council's decision to allow him to continue to gain his stipend was supposed to come up for a revote every quarter, I think it was, or every four months or three months. And the vote was to come up this week. And uh, a couple of days ago, uh, the mayor of Agramov announced that he was going to discontinue taking a stipend voluntarily. So, you know, read into that how you want public, because there's so many different avenues that that could mean and none of them necessarily are the right answer. I mean, it's probably that defense takes time. Yeah. Going on to more fun things. Justice There's has prevailed. N- <laughs> uh, the school board voted earlier this week unanimously to remove the uh, Cecil Rhodes sign that's on the basketball court of the school Thank formerly you. known as Cecil Rhodes. Uh, a, a wall with a name on it is kind of T- a monument. Tile preservation tile block. Preservation. So there was a unanimous vote. The Parental Advocacy Committee, the PAC, also voted to ask them to take it down as well. Uh, it seems like there was nobody opposed to it other than people that came forward as alumni of the elementary school, which is a phrase I had never thought I would ever <laughs> use to describe myself in my wonderful elementary school of Kirkbride that I went to. So Cecil Rhodes, for those who don't know their history was the prime minister of what was then called Cape Colony from 1890 to 1896, which later became South Africa. He was British businessman, mining magnate. And real racist. As you would be ruling as... <laughs> Tremendous a racist and advocate of higher education. <laughs> Yeah, and so the, this sign, it's unclear when it went up. It, some people say like 2017, possibly, when they were doing renovations on the school that, you know, maybe some construction workers preserved this piece of floor tile and then, you know, the principal put it up or something. Uh, it's going to come down because uh, the school board is taking down this weird effigy to a really, really racist, horrible human being. Yeah. <laughs> if you're interested, there are a bunch of other schools that have interesting names. For example, uh, there is a school named after Gordon, uh, who was a B- British colonial militia guy who decided to charge down and try to seize the Sudan from the Sudanese people and got killed doing it. Uh, and we have a school named after him still because reasons. I think they should put the tile work somewhere. Like, what are they going to do with the thing? I don't know. Probably smash it. See, that's sad. That makes me sad. It's it's a piece of floor. Yes, historic floor. All right, stick it in a closet and lock it up. Yeah, that, that would be a perfectly... See, like, I'm all in favor of putting the murals in the legislature behind white boards. I just, <laughs> I just don't want them to paint over them. Well, credit to one city trustee, Jennifer Reddy, for bringing this motion forward. Yeah. Yeah. It luckily didn't attract the debate that... Painting rainbow oh. crosswalks in... Sorry, you said it didn't attract debate. Did you hear well, some of the comments at school board? Should we mention that? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's interesting because, like, I always find this whole statue-slash-monument removal thing to veer into what I think is, like, a weird attempt to rewrite history and, like, decontextualize our current state from what we were in the past and i think that there are sensitive ways that you can like put the thing in a closet and then like come out and yell at it once a year so the 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 comment though whether or not there was a lot of controversy while it passed unanimously much like our next issue while it passed overwhelmingly it certainly was not without controversy as dozens and dozens of people came out to say that it was a part of our history it was worth repeat, maintaining uh, one person said what about the good things Cecil Rhodes did and 
wildly weird things came out of it. I, I unfortunately didn't get a chance to save too much of it. Um, but there was there was some very interesting things being uh, said at that council meeting by people that claim to be alumni of this elementary school. Which is such a lovely term. <laughs> well, okay. Like, none, none of these people had their lives touched by Cecil Rhodes, I'm going to bet. Hopefully. I'm going to lead into this next little bit with a story about my recent instance of being trapped in an elevator in Surrey. So, I was at the Surrey Courthouse, as I am, with some regularity, and uh, I noticed that there was a bit of a hubbub at the RCMP headquarters across the street, and the parking lot was full, fuller than I would have expected it to have been on such a day, and as I am in the elevator, it stops, and I am trapped in the elevator with three people who are protesting the fact that the RCMP is raising the, quote, dumb gay flag. Oh, yeah, that's right. Surrey had a protest against that. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. And then they proceeded to explain how they're not opposed to gays. Gays. At least they didn't add a, like, the before it. I was going to say. No, no, it was there. Ugh. Oh. I think one of them said the gays. And they just said, we love Canada, and that's all we love. And I'm like, all right. I'm, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like engaging with this today. I just don't have the mental space to fix you at the moment. Fair. Although I did crank my stereo and play Born This Way on the way out of the Justice Precinct, so I feel like I got my shots in. In the meantime, Richmond decided that far be it for them to have a temporary flag. They were talking about a permanent crosswalk. Yeah, these are you know, in like, vogue in cities across BC. Mm-hmm. Princeton has one. Burnaby is getting four. And that seemed to move forward uncontroversially through City Hall this week, where they announced the four crosswalks that are going to go up. But Richmond has not had enough consultation on this, according to people at the hearing on... Where they were being consulted. Of course. Crosswalks. Some of the most wildest things I... So, uh, you know, CBC's Justin McElroy, the absolute, uh, you know... invaluable resource in the region, uh, went down to the meeting and reported on it. Uh, and some of the quotes, does this mean Muslims can put their Allah on a crosswalk? A stunning, stunning show of ignorance as to what Islam permits and doesn't. Although I think it would be cool to like have the like calligraphy. For... Sure. Huh. Like, uh-huh. I'm like, as soon as I hear that, I'm like, sure, why not? Well, um, I mean, making a representation of Allah would be very effective. I mean, that too, yeah. But <laughs> another person asked, what will I tell my children when they ask what happened to the black and white crosswalks? I don't know. Even if you are a bigot, just say they wanted to add a little color. Like, even if you want to shield your children from the existence of humans, like, you you can be a bigot and still get away with that answer there. <laughs> they lack creativity. They can't even talk about color. A list of rainbow crosswalks was published in the Georgia Strait, and I would like to just give a shout-out to Kamloops. Castlegar, Princeton, Kelowna, Nelson, Summerland, Valemount, Selkirk, Vernon, Fernie, Rosslyn, Salmon Arm, Merritt, Kamloops again, apparently, Cranbrook, Williams Lake, Massett, Smithers, Prince George, Prince Rupert, Terrace, Dawson City, and Kitimat. There was one speaker that read out the list, and when she got to Abbotsford, paused and said, yes, even Abbotsford. Uh, it's just, it's so wild, the opposition that came out of this. 
And in, in a sign that, you know, politics knows no bounds for stupidity, uh, the vote ended up being uh, unanimous, save for one vote, uh, who was the former NDP candidate for the area in the last federal election or provincial election. Provincial, or, I believe. Provincial election, yeah. Who happens to be a counselor now. Anyways, I don't I don't want to spend too much time berating uh, bigots, but uh, man, there were some great things in that thread that Justin McElroy had. I want to read out like one, oh, or, two, one or two of these because it does, I mean... I I will let the comments speak for themselves. The crossing may cause confusion that it is only for the LGBT community and not for the general public. I'm in favor of it. You know what? I'm in favor of it. We get our own crosswalks. Oh, yeah, that's right. Will straights be confused if they can use the crosswalk person? (laughs) Or do we just have to look really sullen and like a little bit, like a little bit, like it's not our space when we do that, when we use it? It must be deferential in this crosswalk. Ugh. If anything should happen, and the driver or victim sues the city because of their distracted driving, then I wonder, is our city hall accountable to take full responsibility for this? And all I have to say is, if you are in fact charged with dangerous driving, call the Sarah Lehman Law Group at 604-900-9211. I'm actually just exhausted from reading these. Also, it's not like Hong Kong. It's not like the erosion of democracy in Hong Kong. You're at the fucking public consultation! That's right. Somebody compared it to the, the, the opposition in Hong Kong, so the opposition to this was the same. I am opposed. There needs to be more public consultation actually means I am afraid that you aren't going to come to the decision I want and therefore am going to delay it as much as possible. Fuck you or fuck you. So on a lighter, even more funny note, the mayor of Surrey Nothing continues... Nothing is brighter and lighter than the pride no, flag. The mayor of Surrey continues to be amazing. I think let's let his words speak for himself. Ian, you pulled the quote? The idea, and we'll talk about the idea in a second, certainly came to me when I noticed that in Qatar, when I was there, that shopping centers had canals instead of walkways in a lot of their shopping centers. It's a direct quote. But if you look at other places, like Venice, they have canals that they use for transportation. Does Surrey need a canal? A meandering canal, I believe, was the word that he used that would travel from North Surrey to South Surrey. Via a not very well-used street. Yes, he would definitely be a not very well-used street. Because we're not going to displace traffic in Surrey, of course. <laughs> Unless <laughs> motor the boats doing the displacement. Badump Archimedes joke. He has apparently directed staff to start investigating. And once again, other councillors <laughs> were caught completely off guard and didn't know about this until it hit the news. There have been different politicians who have this kind of reputation. Gordon Campbell famously would read a policy book over a break and come back with yep. a new theory of government. But he was Rob, a policy nerd. So but he, he was a policy nerd. So his were worked. heady. Then you have the like Fords in Ontario or the Trump who just seem to, whatever they feel like to that day is the policy they run with. And I'm not saying Doug McCallum is our local Ford or Trump. I mean, the Dugs are the same. Okay, first off, Villaggio, which is the actual name of this stupid mall, doesn't actually use this canal for any kind of meaningful transportation. It's just a ride, like West Edmonton Mall. It's like saying Doug McCallum was like, I visited the mysterious land of Edmonton recently and found that, or 20 years ago when they actually still had submarines, but found that they used in their mall for transportation submarines. Let us let us build an entirely submarine-based transit network. 
Or I don't visit... know why Doug McCallum is like an ancient British aristocrat in my... <laughs> it checks out. <laughs> and it's worth Googling the pictures because Qatar has constructed Venice within its borders, which is yeah. just fascinating. It, the thing that really makes me laugh is, is, you know, we've got daylighting streams is this thing in Vancouver. Now, if Mayor McCallum came out and said we need to daylight the Nicomechal and the Serpentine Rivers uh, significantly more than they already are, uh, sure, everyone would be like, great idea. Uh, but this weird meandering canal with gondolas and uh, that's the boat kind of gondolas, not the the air kind of ones. Like, I don't get it. And then in Vancouver, we have, you know, Councillor Weeb is doing, is saying similar when he says, like, let's, let's daylight these streams. But what he's doing is he's educating himself. He's working with staff. He's determining feasible I, routes. I can't even let you get away with saying this is similar to what Councillor Weeb is <laughs> well, no, saying. But, like, like, but you see, but you see the line They both have an idea. And they are both pursuing it and the idea, in dramatically and the idea, different ways. But the ideas both involve, like, streams Water. and rivers, essentially. And, like... This is what is the example. No, of a, I can't even give it no, up. No, but, no, but let me finish. Okay. This is this is the example of a responsible government on the left. Well, on the West and like this weird, irresponsible lurching from idea to idea, old man on the on the, the East. And it's so such a stark contrast between how you run governments. We will outforce. You will outfit the police force with an aqualung. Well, it's a sad, sad day as Someone got divorced, and that apparently means that Vancouver loses its oldest bar. The Campy will be leaving us in November. It's stunning how many people have, like, really strong memories, myself included, of the Camby. I have some strong memories and some hazy memories. I have a lot of strong memories of walking into the Camby and not <laughs> as many great ones about walking out. <laughs> But it, you know, from the from the tables with all the pennies jammed into the wedges of the tables to the repainting of the tables, the repainting of the tables, the the smoking room in the back that was there for a while. Oh yeah, <laughs> the trough that you would have to urinate into when you went to the men's. Those room. are always the classiest. Yeah, the classiest of places. It's I now and now in use by the entire nation of Australia. But yeah, I just remember the ten ninety five uh, pictures of Granville Island. I think yeah. I've only managed to go there a couple times when I was an undergrad. Because going there after undergrad is just sad. Or you're local. No, I, I spent I spent yeah. my my Stanley Cup series there. I, I saw I think three games of the final series there. Yeah. It was always a great kickoff point for uh, going into out to the the party, and then of course was a weird kickoff point for going and walking into downtown, hopeful that there was going to be a party, and then seeing a giant plume of smoke <laughs> rising from what used to be the Christie Clark phone banking office. And then we turned, and then we turned again and walked back to the Camby, and then out of downtown, because by then the buses had stopped running. There wasn't actually any rioting near the Camby, but yeah, what I, a time. I just remember two years ago, I was out for beers with a friend downtown because uh, somebody was in from out of town. And so these are people that I don't normally see. They're old university friends. And a buddy of mine, we were the last two left at the bar. And he was trying to cajole me to go for one more. And I said, no, nah, I don't really. I've got something to do tomorrow. I can't. And he says, you know what? I can, t I can name a bar that will make you want to go have another one. And I went, that's not possible. I've already said I'm not coming for another one. And he just looks at me and says, the Camby. And there was a pause. And I went, touche. We got up and we walked to the Cambia. We probably had three or four more drinks. <laughs> I also remember one weird moment where I was in the Cambia and then 
for some reason, they decided to start showing a documentary on Michael Ignatieff. And it was just like, because of the weird way that they had their screen set up, just like, it looked like a fly's eye view of Michael Ignatieff. So there were like a hundred <laughs> different little Michael oh. Ignatieffs on the, it was so weird. I, I don't like it. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> was this bef- after his ill-fated no, I think, it, I think it was while he was leader, but before oh. he had totally ruined everything. Oh. I just actually learned there is another Cambi. In Nanaimo. In Nanaimo, for some reason. But if you are feeling nostalgic and need those cheap drinks, it's a ferry ride away. It won't be the same. It won't be the same. Maybe we can, uh, maybe we can do a live show there before they close. Canby, if you're listening. <laughs> Patreon.com slash report. And remember to do the survey at canbyreport.ca slash survey. Please do the survey. It's really vital. Good night. And the rezoning is dead. The hospice has won. What? Uh, the vote's coming in right now. I've been, I've been tracking it. Uh, Your live breaking update on a recorded medium. (laughs) 